Welcome to EduMeasure, a podcast for teachers, students, parents, and others concerned with transforming teaching and learning. A podcast for exploring creative, unconventional responses to current issues in education. I'm your host, Bernd Estabrook, a professor at a small liberal arts college in Illinois. And in today's podcast, I'd like to follow up on an issue related to our previous podcast on the AI controversy. Now, that last podcast reflected on AI and ChatGPT, and implied in that discussion was the problem of rigor. I'd like to look more closely at how we use this term in education, rethinking how we understand it, in order to identify new ways to approach the idea. Now, we use the word rigor in a very general way academically. It usually refers to how hard we make our students work, or how challenging the material is that we present to them. The term appears most often when we set our course goals. That is, when we design our courses with the students' learning potentials in mind. It's interesting to note that the dictionary definition of rigor in this context from Webster's uses the following language. Harsh inflexibility in opinion, temper or judgment, severity, strict precision, exactness, scrupulous or inflexible accuracy or adherence, high standards, the quality of being detailed, careful, and complete. Now, the growing frequency of the term rigor among educators is, I think, less due to a purely academic or intellectual rationale than to a psychological one. A deep uncertainty, even an insecurity, about our competence as teachers. Now, the problem of rigor is often framed in current concerns about content, namely our increasing difficulties with the transfer of important factual knowledge. The challenge of passing on crucial information that our students are often unable to retain and apply appropriately. Now, we understand academic rigor to require that students be held to high standards, that we adhere to such standards in what we assign to them. It demands that teachers insist on more from their students than achieving merely superficial understanding, thoughtless acquiescence, or careless execution of tasks. A medical student needs a secure and detailed knowledge of anatomy. A music student needs to understand the intricacies of keys and scales. And a history student has to have a broad background in the events of the past. And if they only have a superficial understanding of these things, it limits what they can understand and accomplish. Any of us who have been teaching for a long time know that our students are not able to process or remember disciplinary content to the same degree that they did only a few decades ago. They're not able to read the same number of books, nor to memorize or retain the same degree of factual knowledge. They read less, they write less, and not surprisingly, they retain less. And we as teachers are therefore compelled to reduce our expectations for the acquisition of factual knowledge, even as our professional guidelines demand that students learn how to deal effectively with the increasing complexity, breadth, and sophistication of that knowledge today. But as instructors, we know that we cannot ignore the difficulties our students have with retaining content from our disciplines. Because if we do, they will do poorly, and we will have to deal with the consequences for this failure. So what's the real problem with content in our courses? Why do our classrooms seem to be running a desperate race to achieve content goals in spite of our students' growing inability to retain and integrate that knowledge? 
Why does it seem that each year we must pare away more and more of the content in our courses in order to give our students the time they require to learn the material? How are we to hold them to high standards? And if current trends continue, how are we ever to find a solution to this steadily growing problem? There are several issues at play here. Now among them, the first and perhaps most obvious, is that the flood of new knowledge in nearly every discipline has become almost unmanageable. As professionals, we ourselves are barely able to keep up with new discoveries, with changing theories, with the rush to embrace innovation and novelty, and with the flood of vast amounts of data, often unprocessed, in our areas of specialization. Rendering this enormous amount of material in digestible form for students is both time-consuming and requires a level of information prioritization, a sifting of salient facts. We can't teach them everything, and so we have to choose carefully the most essential and meaningful information. This prioritization, however, requires a consensus of the experts in the discipline that is often not available. And even when such consensus is available, we soon discover that it has been superseded by a new flood of information. Perhaps most disturbing and difficult is that our students do not believe they need to retain or master factual information since it is readily available on their electronic devices. Why remember what Google has already retained for them? I have wrestled with the issue of rigor in my classroom for nearly 40 years myself. I don't have any easy answers, but I would like to share some experiments with you that may be helpful or inspiring. First, a couple of the presuppositions that I begin with in my own analysis. Now, it's obvious that after a good faith effort to stay current in our disciplines, it's incumbent upon us as professionals to sift the vast harvest of contemporary content for relevance and importance and to frame this material at the appropriate intellectual level. It is important for us to remember that our professional expertise is not to be found in the mere accumulation of factual knowledge, but rather in our ability to discern what is vital in that knowledge. Another assumption is that our students are no less intelligent than students decades ago. They can work just as hard as those students once did. But before they're willing to do so, they now require a much fuller understanding of why that work is necessary than their predecessors did. They're not going to take the need for hard work on faith alone. They need to be persuaded or inspired. So how might we rethink our approach to course content? I'd like to share some of my experiences with my first-year seminar in this context. It's a course that's designed to help students make the necessary baseline intellectual and psychological preparations needed for success in college. Now, the need for this course arose in no small part in my institution because of the problem that we were having with students who were not adjusting to the academic rigor of the college classroom. It was clear that most students needed additional guidance, if they were going to adapt to the increased expectations of college work. Now, for my part, the realization that fewer students were ready to meet the standards and expectations of my classroom was, frankly, demoralizing, at least initially, because it seemed that I, like my colleagues, would have no choice but to simplify my assignments and reduce the classroom workload, which would mean limiting the intellectual goals of my courses surrendering high standards to the reality of mediocre achievement. I decided that the best way to resist this trend was to go in the opposite direction. 
Instead of reducing the amount of material read and written, I decided to raise the expectations of my courses. I would have my students do more work and add more rigor to the classroom rather than accommodate myself to the prevailing, slow, painful withdrawal of content that ostensibly kept me from overwhelming my students or causing a revolt. I knew, of course, that just adding more work was not enough. It was clearly my job to persuade my students that this work was both meaningful and necessary. I worked this out in what I now describe as my meta-discourse. I took my students' concerns and ideas seriously and engaged them in a direct debate about the nature and purpose of what I was doing in the classroom. Now, this involved making them responsible for their own learning— that is, by defining and explaining at length the purposes of my assignments, of all classroom work and readings. Now, I asked them not only what the purposes of these assignments were, but I insisted that they clarify their own goals. Now, if you ask students why you are giving them a particular assignment, you're going to get a shrug of shoulders. And not surprisingly, because... Students are used to being told to do things without knowing or perhaps even caring why they are doing them. And I told them that in this classroom, that was no longer an option. That when we did something, I wanted them to understand exactly what it was I was asking them to do and why. That is, they had to figure out what I was going to learn about them that would enable me to give them appropriate feedback and to evaluate them with a grade. Not only did I make it clear that they needed to know what I was thinking and why I was doing this, but they also had to clarify their own goals. And those goals were more than simply sit in the classroom and fulfill a requirement. If they gave me that kind of a goal definition, then it was my job to challenge those goals. The best way to do this, from my point of view, was to engender pride in achievement. Now, one of the things that I learned in this process was that self-esteem comes from achievement, not identity. Now, I encouraged students to seek challenges in their classrooms deliberately, not to avoid them or to merely endure them, but to seek them out. And I also, through a variety of discussions in this regard, help them understand that this requires not only learning, in the sense that they're used to understanding that word, but unlearning. In fact, that it required often more unlearning than it required learning. The problem, of course, is, is that our students approach education, after more than a decade of such education, as if it were merely accretion and addition a heaping on of more and more and more over time. My point to them was that education is in fact only partially the addition of new knowledge and that it is also the loss of old knowledge, of knowledge that has become obsolete or that is simply wrong. Now when I'm describing this process to my students, I do this always making very clear that this is a painful and difficult process. Now, I suppose you could say that I'm using the strategy that Winston Churchill used a long time ago when faced with the grim facts of the war in 1940, asking them not only to understand that there was going to be blood, tears, and sweat, but to actually recognize this 
with pride and even to embrace it as a means of improving themselves. One of the interesting things about the modern classroom for me, especially at the college level, is the position of athletics. I have a lot of students who are athletes in my classrooms. Sometimes close to 60% of my students are regularly involved in one of the sports at our institution. And I realized early on that it was useful and necessary to use athletics as a metaphor for what I was looking for in the classroom, specifically helping them understand the necessity for quality in their work and for attention to detail. Now, of course, when it comes to athletics, hard work is something they expect. A certain degree of suffering is expected. It's going to be difficult. This suffering, though, is purposeful. It's meaningful. And they understand this. And there is, of course, trust in the coach. The idea that the coach knows how to help them achieve their goals and that whatever difficulties or problems that they run into that these are to be expected, and that they are way stations on the way towards achieving something important. But I wanted to inspire an idealism that was rooted in their own experiences. Specifically, I wanted to focus in this discussion of why we're doing what we're doing on what they currently lack, on what they most desire, and on what they have the capacity and potential to achieve by unfolding their capacities. I wanted to appeal to their desire for freedom, for autonomy, and most particularly for the exercise of their talents and abilities. Forty years of teaching has brought me to one very important conclusion in this regard. Students, young people, are built to learn. And it's only our system that makes learning dull and uninspiring. Now, sadly, we all too often relegate the satisfactions of hard work to the realm of athletics. They're used to thinking of these ideas in that realm, but applying them to what they are doing in the intellectual realm requires a jump there. And that meta discourse I'm talking about, why we are doing what we're doing and how it works, explaining the process. That this is, in fact, one of the best ways to help them understand the necessity for applying the principles learned from athletics to their entire experience. Rigor, when we think about it, shouldn't be defined primarily as severity, pain, or suffering, but rather as the capacity for work, the capacity for achievement, the capacity for creation, for the transformation of the inchoate and ideal into the palpably, vividly, living, real. I would argue that rigor is not the imposition of standards, nor is it the successful control and subordination of students in order to produce specific products desired by teachers. What I think we need to do is to inspire our students to recast the notion of rigor as a voluntary commitment to the framework of a particular discipline where we encourage their understanding of that discipline's limits and potentials, helping them realize that those limits are necessary in order to channel and intensify our intelligence and curiosity, which in turn leads to the discovery of new knowledge and the creation of insight. Rigor is not a yoke to control or subdue students' energies, 
but rather a process for focusing those energies and bringing them to a white-hot intensity. Rigor is, at its best, characterized by patience, discipline, seriousness of purpose, clarity, and precision, which makes it, therefore, a product of maturity, of the recognition that long-term goals require delayed gratification, that our immediate desires can be raised to a higher power by subordinating those desires to temporary limitations for the sake of more complex and powerful achievements. This process of helping students understand the nature of the intellectual work that they have to do, the nature of the assignments that I have provided them with, the goals that I have for them intellectually and academically, this process of explaining this takes a great deal of time. But the rewards are extraordinary. And the interesting thing about this is that it also helps to transform the nature of the classroom in an important way. How? Rather than the students being the recipients of what I give them, by taking them into my confidence, by explaining to them why we are doing what we are doing, by showing and demonstrating how this changes them, how this changes the way that they think, how this serves as a foundation for further thinking, these students are suddenly no longer merely enduring what we do in the classroom. They are becoming active participants. We talk about student engagement a lot these days. We recognize the very term indicates that this is already a problem, that most students are not engaged and that we have to get them engaged. But engagement is not something that we do to them. Engagement is something that cannot be forced on them except through a draconian sort of process, which in the end is self-defeating. Student engagement is something that has to be inspired, and it is closely tied to internal motivation rather than external motivation. Understanding is one of the foundations of internal motivation. It helps them create their own motivation, their own desires for what we are offering to them. And by helping them understand what is possible, we open the door to them to intellectual and academic achievement, but they have to walk through it themselves. In the long run, and especially with the kind of students that we are seeing today, who unfortunately are often very cynical, although I would say that the reasons for their cynicism are unfortunately all too realistic and clear, if we open up this opportunity to them and we work with them, we accompany them on this journey, tremendous things can happen in the classroom. It changes the nature of the entire enterprise in a fundamental way. In future episodes of the podcast, we'll talk a little bit about ways to transform the dynamic in the classroom that allows for this kind of inspiration. That's all for today. The EduMeasure podcast is produced by Ed Leonard and Baron Desterbrook with help from our editing and engineering intern, Miranda Araujo. Thanks for listening.